Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We're looking at the book of Numbers this evening in our continuing series in that book. And if you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to also eventually read chapter 36. We've been continuing this series, and there will be one final sermon two weeks from now uh, on the final chapters of this good book that we've read and studied over the past months that message about pilgrims and wilderness, and uh, that theme is one that we've seen come up again and again. But this evening, we're considering two different texts that we would say bracket the final section of the book. To give you an outline of this, if you remember, uh, there was a census in chapter 1 of the book of Numbers, And then as we've approached the end of the book, in Numbers chapter 26, the chapter before the one that we're going to read here, there's this second census about 40 years after the first of the fighting men of this generation. The first one was of the generation before who died in the wilderness. It's interesting, if you look at a comparison of those two censuses, Uh, It's almost exactly the same number of fighting men. There's 603,550 in chapter 1, verse 46. And in the new census of the next generation, there's 601,730. So less than 2,000 different out of 600,000 plus. And so chapter 26 of this second census, because now... Uh, We're coming to this point where the second generation is going to seek to enter the land. The rest of the chapter is what we would say uh, concluding material about this second generation. And the very end of the book, chapter 36, ends with the second text we're going to read. But let's read then um, the first. Well, let me say this before we read the text. Just to think a little bit about the book of Numbers. We need to remember that the book of Numbers begins with the people in the wilderness and ends with the people in the wilderness. It's not neatly tied up like the book of Genesis, which starts with creation and ends in a coffin in Egypt, or the book of Exodus, which begins with the people in bondage in Egypt, and it ends with them having built the tabernacle and worshiping God and the Shekinah glory of God there. It begins and ends with the people in the wilderness, and as I just said, by the end of the book, the next generation is about to enter the land. And in between, there are these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And why? Well, because the first generation we've seen throughout our studies was unbelieving. So as a consequence, they died in the wilderness. The second generation is characterized as a believing generation, although not without sin. We'll see if we go on and read more books of the Bible. But 
we find that they believe the promise of God, and eventually, under Joshua, they enter the land. Well, why then do these two sections about what we'll see Zelophehad's daughters bookend this concluding section? Before we read the first one, I just wanted to alert you to this. And it's because these women, these daughters, are emblematic of this second generation. They are women of faith. They are deeply concerned about their descendants having an inheritance in the promised land. And they express their concern at a time when, as of yet, the nation does not have one inch of that land yet. One commentator summarizes the book of Numbers in this way. It's a story of two generations, a generation of unbelief that leads to death and a generation of faith that will lead to life. And Zelophehad's daughters are examples of this second generation. So our outline generally tonight is I'm going to read the first text and explain it, and then read chapter 36 and explain both the problem and the solution of each text, and then draw a few lessons about these women of faith. So hear the Word of God, Numbers 27, verses 1 through 11. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Maker, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no sons? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord, And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance to their father, of their father, to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan. And he shall possess it, and it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and rule as the Lord commanded Moses. The problem here is what if a man dies who is to inherit land in the promised land, and he doesn't have a son. The tradition was that the land would go to the son. Who will inherit his land, and how will his name be preserved? Verse 4, that's the concern that's brought by the daughters. And in their case, their father, Zelophehad, had died in the wilderness wandering. It's noted here that he wasn't part of Korah's major rebellion that we looked at. But we're not told exactly why. It just says that he died for his own sin. 
And that could refer to one of the other incidents of the many rebellions and so forth and problems we've seen, or it could just refer to the general sin of unbelief that that generation was guilty of. We don't know. But the daughters come before Moses and uh, at the tent of meeting at the front of that and all the other men of the, the leadership, and they come with their request, with this bold request, second half of verse 4, give to us a possession among our father's brothers. And so what does Moses do? Moses takes their request before the Lord. It's wise that Moses would do that. And the Lord gives an answer and says, these women are right. Their request should be granted. And the Lord gives further instructions about inheritance rights, what we would call case law. That's uh, examples that should uh, guide related cases in the future. This is all well and good, and everyone goes on their way. But then, as apparently as they're getting nearer to entering the land, we go to chapter, chapter 36, if you turn there, which brings us to another problem that is brought before Moses. The problem is stated in verses 1 through 4. Let me begin by reading that part. Chapter 36, verse 1, The heads of the fathers' houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Maker, son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, so that's the same tribe, the same clan, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel, and my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad to our, of Zelophehad our brother to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. What's the problem here? It's this. Zelophehad's and Zelophehad's daughters are all part of the tribe of Manasseh, one of the two sons of Joseph. And if you remember Joseph, his, his blessing was that his sons would each become a tribe. And so Ephraim and Manasseh each became a tribe in their own right. And the leaders of the tribe of Manasseh are concerned about a scenario that would go something like this. What if one of the daughters that's going to inherit this land and have par- part of it, what if she marries a husband who's from another tribe, let's say from the tribe of Benjamin? Well, eventually they're saying when the Jubilee come and the land's supposed to return to all the people who the father's houses of those to whom it belongs, they're saying that little bit of land in the middle of the tribe of Manasseh And the the allotment given by God to Manasseh is going to be a little bit of the the tribe of Benjamin in the middle of Manasseh. This could be very confusing. What if all of them marry someone from other tribes and more land goes to another tribe eventually? 
you can see that they're saying we have a problem with how this is going to work out. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 5, And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, so in other words, again, the Lord gives Moses the answer, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. So their concern was right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. So the answer given by the Lord is, that these daughters can only marry within the tribe of Manasseh, and it's actually more restrictive than that. They're only to marry within their father's clan of that larger tribe. Well, what happens? Look at verse 10 and following. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. So they obeyed the Lord. For Mela, Tirzah, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Well then, what lessons do we learn from these women of faith well, the first one is this. The sin and unbelief of one generation does not determine or fix in stone the spiritual life of the next generation. You hear what I'm saying? One generation's sin and unbelief does not determine the spiritual life of the next generation. Yes, we know there are great blessings from having believing parents and grandparents, but we also know that no one can coast on their parents' faith. It's not like you can say, I'll get into heaven if my parents are walking with the Lord. And yes, we know there are generational patterns of sin and brokenness that are passed down to generations, but I think what we're seeing a glimpse is here, a glimpse of here in the second generation that in Christ there is a redemption that breaks these patterns of generational sin. And isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.17 declares when Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I think this is a great application. No matter how much brokenness and sin there might be in your families background or history, the gospel gives a new life. The gospel gives a new start. And even though every Christian still struggles with remaining sin and with these generational patterns and so forth, Jesus Christ 
has secured our inheritance in Him by His cross and by His resurrection and our ultimate victory and our ultimate inheritance in Christ is certain. And our struggle is to believe what we say we believe about the Word of God and then to live accordingly. These daughters of Zelophehad believed the Word of the Lord and they lived accordingly. And that brings us to the second lesson. God has the right to set boundaries in our lives by His Word. And in this particular case, He has the right to set boundaries about whom we are free to marry. Interesting, isn't it? The daughters of Zelophehad were given very strict guidelines by God as to whom they were to marry. It's interesting, the prophet Jeremiah was commanded by God not to marry. That's even more severe, isn't it? And in chapter 36, verse 8, we're told that they were only to marry within the tribe and then specified not only within the tribe, but even in their father's clan. Very limited. This prohibition, we remember, didn't apply to the rest of the people of Israel in the community of Israel, a woman could marry someone from another tribe. Of course, she was marrying into that tribe. It only applied to these daughters because of the particular circumstances here. But it was because they wanted to have this privilege of receiving an inheritance, part of the promised land, part of the land within the region that would be allotted to the tribe of Manasseh, part of the land that would have been allotted to their father, who had died. In other words, these women had set their eyes on something higher and more glorious. They had set their eyes on the promise of God, this inheritance of the land. Well, we know that the New Testament has something to say about whom we should marry as well, and in 1 Corinthians 7.39, it specifically said that we are to marry only in the Lord. It means a fellow believer. The Bible does not prohibit marriage with someone of a different race or culture or social background or educational achievement or any other difference, although these types of differences are all important considerations in choosing a spouse. We don't gloss over these things lightly. But the Bible does tell us clearly that Christians are commanded by God only to marry in the Lord. And really, that command only makes sense biblically. How could you unite yourself at the deepest level to someone whose fundamental allegiance is to another master? You would be making two commitments that are at war with one another. Now, of course, the Bible also talks about people being already married to someone who's not a believer, and they come to Christ and they shouldn't separate or divorce. There's a lot about that in 1 Corinthians as well. One commentator makes this application of this point. He talks about the fact that there's this limitation in Scripture to marry in the Lord. And he says that principle is simple and clear, yet many young people face the temptation to date and ultimately to marry people who do not fit that single biblical criterion. Why is that? Thinking back on my own experiences, it's because something other than faith 
in the reality and importance of the heavenly inheritance is driving our choices. We are being drawn to others by their physical or emotional attractiveness or by social and family pressures to find someone with whom to have a relationship. Heaven seems incredibly distant, especially when we are young, while the attractions of the present seem incredibly powerful. Yet if the heavenly inheritance that Christ died to win for us is truly all-important, then other motivations will be put in their proper place. If your eyes are fixed on your future inheritance, present obedience will make much more sense. It's a good point, isn't it? And that brings us to our third application, which is really a broader application of lesson number two. Having our eyes fixed on our heavenly inheritance is a strong antidote to setting our hearts on the things of this world. Excuse me. Having our eyes fixed on our heavenly inheritance is a strong antidote to setting our hearts too much on the things of this world. Think of this great contrast between the first generation and the second generation in the book of Numbers. The contrast is between faith, really, isn't it? The first generation failed to believe the promise of God. They failed to believe that God would give them the land. And we remember that terrible turning point in the narrative, in the account when the ten spies, the ten of the twelve spies, brought a bad report to the people, uh, a report based on fear of the inhabitants of the land and how they were like giants and they couldn't take the cities. It wasn't a report based on, based on faith. It was, it was a report that they would never be able to take the land. And so that first generation failed to believe the Word of God. And as a consequence, they eventually all died in the wilderness, all except Joshua and Caleb. The second generation was not without sin and failure, as we later see in the book of Joshua, but fundamentally, they believed the promise of God. They believed that God would give them the promised land. They looked in faith to the inheritance. Do you see the contrast Scripture brings us here? When we get to the very end of Numbers, Numbers 36, and the daughters of Zelophehad hear what the Lord says through Moses, it simply says, the daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. How did they do that? By faith in the promises of God and His Word because they had set their hearts on the inheritance. They obeyed the Lord's command. Would this have been hard for them? Well, we're not told anything about that. Maybe one of them had her heart set on a certain young man from another tribe. I don't believe there was the degree of romanticization of marriage as there is nowadays. I'm sure if Hollywood made a movie of the story, they would add all kinds of subplots and twists. But the sense of the text is that the daughters simply obeyed and hardly minded the cost. The point is they were receiving something much better, the inheritance which was part of God's amazing covenantal promises to the nation of Israel, which included that He would be their God and they would be His people. Think about how this point helps us to search our hearts and to be strengthened in the face of the temptations of this life. 
to be strengthened in the face of the temptations that all of us will face this week. Having our eyes fixed on our heavenly inheritance is a strong antidote to setting our hearts too much on the things of this world. In the New Testament, with the coming of Jesus and the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows that are foreshadowed in Christ, the promise of the land and the inheritance is transformed into its glorious, bright, shining, final form. And now it means a heavenly inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth, which is ultimately eternal fellowship with God Himself through Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the inheritance, to know forever and to be drawn in to the very love of the persons of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the love that they have for one another before eternity, we would say, outside of all eternity. That's the heavenly inheritance that believers have in Jesus Christ. I think of two kinds of temptations. I'm sure there are more, but think of it this way. One kind is that that of outright sinful temptation, to do something forbidden by God's Word. And there are many examples of that in the the Bible. There are lists of kinds of sins we could read. But then there are also the temptations of putting God's good gifts of this life in the place of God, really more subtle temptations, and to make those things really our idols, our gods in the place of God. Well, whichever kind of sinful temptation it is, how do we fight temptation like that? And part of the answer is that we fight it as we are focused and satisfied with a higher joy, a higher love. The Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers had a sermon that was very famous. The title has really stuck, An Expulsive Power of a New Affection. How do you expel the temptation and sin from your life? It's a new affection for Jesus Christ and all the promises of God in Christ. Yes, there are spiritual disciplines to follow. Yes, we must put to death sin and sinful self. But for those strivings to have power in our life, they must be animated by a higher affection a higher love, a higher treasure, a higher reward, we would say. And one way that Scripture speaks about that higher affection is the promise of our heavenly inheritance. Look at or listen to some of the promises about inheritance in the book of Ephesians alone. In Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul is talking about coming to know Christ, he says, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In modern Greek, that word guarantee, guarantee is the the word for engagement ring in modern Greek. The Holy Spirit is like the engagement ring. It's the, he's the down payment of our entire inheritance we have in Christ. And later at the end of chapter 1, when Paul first prays for the Ephesians, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope to which God has called them, and what, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance 
in the saints. There's that word inheritance again. He's praying that they would know that. They've already come to know Christ. He's praying that they would deep, more deeply know the hope to which God has called them and the, the riches of His inheritance. And it's interesting that in chapter 3, in that prayer in Ephesians, which is a similar prayer to chapter 1, one of the central themes of that second time Paul prays to that, for them is that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That they would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I think those two ideas are really linked scripturally. There's a correspondence there, I think, that knowing Christ's love fully and finally in heaven is at the very heart of the inheritance that we will receive. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, a very familiar verse, it, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. The picture there is when we see Jesus in glory after we die or when Jesus returns, and we see Him and we're filled in a way beyond any of our experiences in this life with the love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're caught up into that love that Jesus prays in John 17 that he says, he prays that the love that the Father and the Son have for one another, that we would be part of that. And John is talking about when we have that experience and how we'll be transformed completely without sin. And he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's a motivation for holy living now. How does that affect us here and now then? In other words, knowing and setting our eyes on the inheritance to come, experiencing the down payment of the Holy Spirit now. Think of it this way. One of the, one of the primary ways we experience that inheritance now is to be growing in a true knowledge of the love of Jesus Christ. And even though that experience for all of us is obscured by sin so that we grieve that we are not more deeply moved in our daily lives by the love of Christ. Why would we ever sin again if we were truly knew the love of Christ as we should? But we long to know His love more fully, and so our present knowledge of Christ's love for us because of God's certain promise to us in the gospel increases our assurance of the heavenly inheritance that we are yet to enter into. And so my question for you this evening as you consider these lessons from Numbers, have you received this certainty of heavenly inheritance by putting your faith in Jesus Christ? It's not by works. It's not by going to church. It's not by trying to be good. It's by receiving it as a sinner who needs Jesus Christ if you haven't done that, may you turn away from anything in this world that keeps you from giving your life to Jesus Christ. And may you turn to Him in faith. And Christian, my question for you is, do you have your eye on the inheritance? 
is your greatest desire to know more deeply the love of Jesus Christ your Lord and stand daily by faith in that gospel, that love of Christ, knowing that one day soon we will fully enter into that love. That should be our prayer and our hope and our highest joy. Amen. Father, thank You for this wonderful inheritance. Thank You for the down payment of the Holy Spirit as the gift of this person of the Godhood dwelling in us because of what Jesus did on the cross and resurrection and ascension. Thank You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for Your great work in calling us to Yourself. Lord, we pray that You would seal these truths to us, these truths of Your Word which sustain us by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.